I'm Leslie Brinehook, and this is Suasion. Part 4 Well, last week was certainly a wild ride in Rush Limbaugh's America. By the end of last week, Rush Limbaugh was about the last man standing by his man, certainly the last major media voice defending Trump's premature declaration of victory and his demands to stop counting the fraudulent vote. Even Fox News had decried the president's behavior as, uh, well, unpresidential. But not Rush. He's the president, Rush told his 15 or 20 million devoted fans, and me. He's the president, so anything he does is presidential. In the last three decades that I've been listening to Rush since I met him, or at least his voice, in my mother's kitchen, that might be my very favorite Rush Limbaugh line. And then he attacked Fox, revealing its dirty secret, that at its helm was a Democrat supporter. So there you have it. Fox News is a front for the Democrats. Who knew? My Democrat-despising mother's been dead for more than a year, so why do I still know what Rush Limbaugh and Fox News are saying? That's a fair question. As I discussed in previous episodes, I've been trying to connect the dots between Limbaugh's manipulation of disaffected conservatives, people like my smart, decent parents, and today's polarization, which started way, way before social media. Looking back and listening now, I'm convinced that Limbaugh was instrumental in paving the road from the early 90s when he became really the first loud voice of right-wing outrage to hear. A deeply divided America is Limbaugh's legacy. But he's more than the instigator. He's also Trump's translator. And when Trump says something outrageous or venal, Rush Limbaugh translates it, explains it to his more knowledgeable, more intellectual, more refined listeners, and then he tells them how the liberal media is twisting Trump's words or his meaning. My mother and millions and millions of American voters have never set foot on Twitter. If you haven't heard what Limbaugh and those like him are saying, if you dismiss them and everyone who listens to them as stupid, bigoted, soulless, evil idiots, you'll never understand how more than 70 million people could cast a ballot for Trump. Or why this division is so big. So for the past week, I made myself follow all sides of that fractious election, an election I was once convinced would never happen. In 2017, really early in Trump's presidency, when Steve Bannon was still lording over the White House, I got it in my head that they had a plan, that if it even looked like Trump could lose the election, they'd stir up enough trouble to justify declaring martial law and prevent 2020 ballots from ever being cast. It seemed possible. But martial law... Could they do that? Late one night, breathless with worry, I googled it. Googled, can the president unilaterally declare martial law and suspend elections? And what came up was a long string of opinion pieces on blogs and 
sites that pretend to be news from a few years earlier. And they all said basically the same thing. They said, you just watch. Obama's going to declare martial law and there will never be another election. He's a dictator who thinks he should be president for life. So now I was one of those crazy people. The people I heard calling into Limbaugh and Sean Hannity's right-wing rage radio shows when I visited my mother. I spent the eight years of Obama's presidency trying to dissuade my mother from following Limbaugh and his ilk into the absurdity of Hitler illusions. God, there were so many. No, Mom, that volunteer bill is not Hitler's brown shirts. It's about opportunities for disadvantaged kids. Calling up the legislation, making her read it. I think I won that one, at least. But there were a lot. I've said before that there was no one living who my mother hated more than the Clintons. But her true, pure hatred all her life was for Adolf Hitler. For all the reasons. From his white supremacist ideals and the evils of the Holocaust to the great authoritarian state he created, with neighbor snitching on neighbor. When Mom heard the word socialism, she didn't hear social programs and shared wealth. She didn't connect to the Medicare she was happy to benefit from. She didn't hear Sweden. She certainly didn't hear a better standard of living at all. She heard the National Socialist German Workers' Party, the Nazis. She heard Hitler and Stalin and Mao, all the purges and slaughter and starvation, all the authoritarian evils of her youth. She heard crumbling infrastructure and long bread lines and the end of free will and free enterprise. And she wasn't alone in that. People of her generation and many others continue to make those connections, to conflate socialism with communism, or at least to see it as the dark gateway, and they've schooled a legion of youngsters on those same slippery slopes. It doesn't even matter if it's right or true. That fear is very real. After I googled martial law and got that kick in the head, I vowed to stop panicking and start reading across a wider swath of perspectives. I vowed to calm down. And yes, I know it's easy to be calm when you're sitting on this side of the Canadian border and you're white and cis and nobody near you has a gun and you're not under any threat at all. I agree with that. I'm acutely aware of my secure and privileged position. Although in truth, often I don't feel lucky. I just feel sidelined. In the past handful of years, watching this chasm widen and the insanity increase in the country where I was born, I have never regretted more my decision years ago to give up my U.S. citizenship. Over the past two weeks, I've forced myself to walk the line, to check what they're saying about every major story from both sides of the media divide, and then to check in on Russia's views, too. If Alex Trebek taught us anything, it's that knowing things matters. So here's one thing I now know. It's not that people disagree on the right approach. They've always done that. It's that people don't even know the same things anymore. Here's an example. 
I saw the CNN coverage of the trucks in Texas surrounding the Biden campaign bus days before the election. Then I checked on what Fox News was saying about it. That convoy was either a threatening attempt to run the Democrats' bus off the road by a group of armed vigilantes, or it was a lark, a happy group of voters exercising their democratic rights to wave flags and drive alongside the bus for a while, just to show them they weren't very popular. I'm not saying both of those versions is true. It's being investigated, so eventually, hopefully, we'll know exactly what happened. But you probably already believe one of those versions. Everybody does. We all believe the one that confirms our worldview. The other problem is that we're more likely to believe the first version of the story we hear. And once you believe something, it is very, very hard to change that. In a viciously divided media universe, a great deal of the information you're working with and what you hear first depends on what sources you derive your news from. And the sources you're choosing obviously depend, in no small way, on your pre-existing biases. This isn't just an American problem, and it isn't just a problem of the uneducated or gullible. A Monday before the election a very astute colleague of mine in New York, told me that the stock market was soaring on the prediction of Biden's win. So I went to Fox's site. And of course, the markets were clearly predicting a Trump victory. When I told my friend that, she seemed surprised to hear it and surprised that there could be such divergent ways of seeing it. Most of us are not interested in digging around to find out more to counter what we believe. I can't blame them. I mean, it's exhausting and it's awful. Still, I tried to keep all the channels open during the long election week, reading or watching across multiple networks, chasing down links from those stories, looping back to CNN's endless election math, then reading up on state voting systems and checking in on Rush Limbaugh's show every day then seeking out divergent views on Twitter well beyond my usual circles. It made me dizzy. Years ago, I I took a course with an anthropologist. I'm sorry I don't remember his name, but I recall very, very clearly something he talked about. He said that anthropologists have particularly high rates of depression and mental illness, that trying to deeply understand other cultures while divorcing your own bias and your own beliefs and your own moral code can pull the ground right out from under you. Because we all learned how to be human and how to think about right and wrong starting from the day we were born. Our fundamental belief systems, even when they're just constructs, are part of the frame that holds us together psychologically. And last week, mine were getting wobbly. After a while, I wanted to lash out in all directions because it felt like everybody was lying, obfuscating, or deliberately telling its slant. In an unexpected twist, it was Twitter that finally made me feel better. You know, an awful lot of people, of pundits and journalists and people on the street, believe that social media is the thing that caused this great rift between the left and the right. But I don't. I think social media has just revealed and exaggerated the chasm. 
it's not a place where a lot of original thought happens. Sharing and retweeting and commenting on, those aren't acts of creation. Often they're not even acts of critical thinking. They just amplify the way a bullhorn amplifies a voice. I think that exaggerated reiteration is why bots seem so believable on Twitter. I spent more time on Twitter this week than I ever have in my life. And I found, amid the usual rancor and name-calling and bad behavior, some good discussions, verifiable facts I didn't know, and an awful lot of people talking about backing down and building bridges. Though in truth, I'll tell you that was much, much, much more regular from the moderate right. I know there are a lot on the left saying no way. You don't sit down at the table with the devil. Okay, more about that in a minute. So Twitter. The guy that saved my befuddled brain on Twitter was Matthew Sheffield, co-founder of the right-wing outlet Newsbusters, who now calls himself a former conservative activist and journalist. He's on a mission to reveal what he discovered as he rose through the right-wing media ranks. In a long thread on November 6th, he offered his thoughts on how conservative thinking had been hijacked by, well, him and his, and how the basis that liberals are evil was seen as a reason to justify any amount of lying. He tweeted that he's realized U.S. conservatives do not understand the purpose of journalism. That's a quote. And so is this. This became evident to me as I saw that conservative-dominated media outlets were much more biased than outlets run by liberals. The latter had flaws that arose from a lack of diversities, but they operated mostly in good faith. I eventually realized that most people who run right-dominated media outlets see it as their duty to be unfair and to favor Republicans because doing so will somehow counteract perceived liberal bias. And then he delivers this clincher, the tweet that saved me from swirling down the drain of doubt. Quote, I realized later that I didn't understand that journalism is supposed to portray reality. If I'm reading that right, it's quite possible I believed mostly the right things all along. To mark the 30th anniversary of his show, Rush Limbaugh did a 2018 interview with Sean Hannity. And he talked, as he always does, about how the Democrats hate a strong economy, how they despise the idea that people succeed through hard work and self-reliance, because all that diminishes the left's power. You know, I know a lot of liberals, and I've heard a lot of bullshit crazy stuff but I don't think I have ever heard anyone say hard work should never be rewarded and anyone capable of self-reliance should be punished. I don't think anyone says that. Now, I realize beneath that simple, smooth surface is a whole other discussion that Limbaugh and Hannity are never going to have about even playing fields, about being born fortunate, about privilege, and those who deny it. I think the most surprising conversation I ever had with my mother 
happened in 2012 over Skype. I was in India and I'd just come back uh, to my hotel and I called her to let her know I was okay. I'd spent two days in an urban slum uh, working with a family of market workers. I was following them through long, grueling days in high, high heat. And uh, I slept on a cot in an alley because it was so ungodly hot in the two tiny little rooms that a family of seven called home. And that home was scrubbed spotless well into the wee hours. And then they leapt out of bed again at six in the morning when the water came on for the half hour it came on so they could gather up enough water to get them through the day. And just the fact that there was running water for 30 minutes means that that was a pretty upscale slum. So I described all this to my mother and and how hard their life was and how they worked so hard just to get food. And there was just no getting ahead. There was just no way they could work their way out of poverty. And she couldn't believe it. I mean, it was there on her face and in the way she asked really incredulously, you mean they work that hard and they can't get ahead? It was a concept completely outside her realm of experience. How lucky is that? When Rush was talking to Hannity in that 2018 TV interview, he mocked Republicans who want cooperation, who want to work together in America to find common ground. What do we have in common with them, he asked. Name something we have in common. Mr. Limbaugh, my mother was once your biggest fan, and yet because we sustained a close relationship, her and her liberal daughter, over the last three decades, she came to understand something that you don't and probably never will. She knew what we had in common. After years and years of talking and sparring and beating each other at Scrabble, my mother and I arrived at a place where we could listen to each other. One afternoon, a few weeks before she died, she came into the kitchen. I was telling my brother about the waste pickers in South Africa, the reclaimers that I'd just spent a week with, and about their, their struggles to be recognized and allowed to earn their livelihoods and sell their recyclables and, and just be free of harassment from the authorities and recognized as a part of the waste system. I didn't know my mother was listening until she joined our conversation. Rush Limbaugh was still yammering in the living room, but she wasn't, she wasn't listening to him. She was got really interested in this worker's struggle against powerful authorities. And she said, it seems to me we all want the same things. We want to work and get paid, and we want our children to be safe and fed, and we want to build a better life, and we want the goddamn government to let us do it. Almost every single divisive issue in our society is a disagreement about that, about how to make safe, secure, better lives possible. There's always going to be that tension between self-interest and the most good for the most people, and we're always going to disagree vehemently 
on how to do it, on the best way, on what road to take, and just who's blocking that road. But those basic human wants, that's what we have in common. On the left, on the right, in the middle, if we can shed the malignant voices on the fringes and those who are pointing to the extremes and the outrage, we can sit at the same table and fight it out. This war is far from over, and I know the wounds are deep and wide. And for a lot of people, it's just way too early to talk about healing. But if there's still enough left to start a conversation, to work toward even a small square of common ground, then I think we should start there. Every morning for weeks, since I started working on suasion, I've been waking up from vivid dreams of my mother. She's right there, and we're talking, and it's always sharp and clear, and then it's gone before my feet even hit the floor. But since Biden was declared the winner, and after I watched Harris and Biden's speeches and felt that profound relief, it hasn't happened. I haven't dreamed about my mother at all. It seems the conversation has come to a close. I miss her. So those of you who are set to burn your family ties right now, just back up a second before you light that match. Because not a day goes by that I don't wish I was sitting across a scrabble board from my right-wing mother with the dulcet tones of Rush Limbaugh playing in the background. And I could look up from my letters and say, Oh God, Mom, that is such bullshit. And watch the way her mouth would purse and flex, getting ready for the fight. <laughs>